So I want to talk about our vision. Uh, for some, this will be obvious. For some, it's not. It, I'm breaking this talk into two sections. So the first is, what is the church's vision? And the second is, how we fulfill this vision. So what is our vision? As the Canberra Revival Fellowship and the Royal Fellowship across the world. Uh, simply put, our vision is twofold. To get saved and to stay saved. That is our vision. So to get saved, the Luke 4 scripture, which I've just read out, and I'll actually read again because it's important, Luke 4 scripture describes our primary calling as a church and as individuals. So Luke 4.18 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover the sight of the blind and to set at liberty those that are oppressed. So this applies to us in the first instance. We have the gospel preached to us, whether we are 8 or 80, and we respond to the gospel through repentance, through baptism in water and baptism in the Holy Ghost. And then we start the process of declaring the gospel to others. This is seeing the church grow. This is preaching the gospel to whoever will listen to us. This is not only about us coming to the Lord, but about seeing others come as well. This is the primary calling of the church, the number one goal, to see people saved. That's why we're here. The second part of this vision, and I'm going pretty quickly, because we have a couple of other talks from Pastor Bob and Pastor David. What the, second, the second part of this, <laughs> the second part of our vision is to stay saved. We want to stay saved because of the following scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trump. The trump will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You may have your own scripture about why you follow the Lord. Ultimately, I want to see the Lord in the air and I want to be changed as this scripture promises to me. This scripture promises monumental change in a moment of time, whether we awake or whether we're asleep in the Lord, where mortal puts on immortality. A promise of something so extraordinary that the Bible describes it as eye has not seen nor ear heard, that which has entered into the heart of men. This is the return of Jesus Christ. This is the second coming. This is a once-off, planet-changing event. And nothing that you do in your life will compare to this single event and this single moment in time. Yes, we want to stay saved. In staying saved, God unlocks for us a range of things. Blessing and relationship and connection, and purpose, faith and hope, love and a future. 
under the Stay Saved banner, we preach about lots of different things as in Sunday meetings and Wednesday night meetings. I just have five simple things and you can extend this to 25 if you like. But for the sake of time, I call them five subset visions of our staying saved vision. <laughs> if that makes any sense. So we stay saved to be forgiven. In Ephesians 1, 7, I'll just go through these. We you know, won't spend any time talking about them. We stay saved to be forgiven. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The second one, we stay saved because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Romans 8.16, the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The spirit of God within us connects us with the creator of all things. What a wonderful relationship that is. We stay saved because of a belief system. These are mine. Psalms 46.10. Be still and know that I am God and I'll be exalted among the nations and I'll be exalted in the earth. That's a pretty good belief system. Be still and know that I am God. We stay saved because of blessing. In John 10.10, 10, it says a thief does not come to steal and, and to kill and destroy, but to come steal, kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and then that you may have it more abundantly. And though that necessarily is not physical things of the things that we own, it's relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the abundant life that God has called us to. It's a spiritual connection. Whether we have lots of money or little money, it's immaterial for God. God doesn't care. It's our relationship with him. And the last one of that five subsets of how why we stay saved is we stay saved because of the future. And I mentioned it earlier. Uh, the 1 Corinthians 2, 9 scripture, which says, I has not seen nor he heard nor entered into the heart of men the things which God has prepared for those that love him. So that's, that's what our vision is, get saved and stay saved. How do we fulfill that vision? So everything we do in the church, all the activities we do, are based and run on these two principles of getting saved and staying saved. And I'll repeat that because it's a really important statement. All the activities we do in the church are based around these two principles. This is fulfilling our vision, uh, putting aside the most important part, which is our personal relationship and with God, fellowship and faith in God. They, that is assumed. I'm talking about what we do as a church to fulfill our vision. The, the activities around the Get Saved vision are street outreaching, singing on the street corner, handing out pamphlets, websites and Facebook and Instagram accounts, personal contact. They're all the things we do for the Get, the get Saved vision. The Stay Saved, we have other activities. So it's not only getting saved, but staying saved until Jesus Christ comes and we hear the trumpet sound. It's a twofold purpose. Of course, it has to be. The, the activities around the stay saved vision are prayer and fasts. 
Christmas camps, Easter camps, ladies' Bible study, men's weekend, just to name some. This is how we fulfill our stay saved vision. So I'm just talking about what the church does. I'm not talking about us as individuals. Of course, we need a strong relationship with God. We need um, to be connected with him to fulfill all those other things. That's a, that is a given. Then there is what they call, for want of a better word, uh, crossover activities, which do both, which get people saved and also keep them saved, keep us saved. They're things that we love. So we have Sunday communion meetings. Yes, primarily they are to bring people to the Lord, to baptise people and to fill the Holy Ghost. And same with the Wednesday nights. But they're also for us. And so we preach um, about how to stay saved. We preach about our relationship with Jesus Christ. But we also preach the salvation message. We run concert nights, which are to bring visitors to but they're also for us to enjoy. So we enjoy concert nights too. We have dinner nights, the purpose of which is to bring visitors to or trivia nights to bring people to, but also to enjoy ourselves. God wants us to enjoy ourselves. Our young people, our kids' camps, our teens' camps, other activities include conventions and rallies. This is for preaching the salvation message and for our own walk crossover events that fulfill both visions. So the church is about providing a range of activities to satisfy the two main visions what I think are in the Bible. Underpinning all this is our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, our love for God. This is our motivating force. We get this right and then those other things, those other activities fall into line. So that's a simple explanation of our vision. It's not extensive for the sake of time. Um, today we have two other 10-minute talks. First will be from Pastor David on the love of God operating in the church, and the second is Pastor Bob on forgiveness and God working in the church. Good morning, everyone. How are we? Uh, I, I did want to make some comments just in relation to what Pastor Michael has just said and what we've just decided to do. So let's move. I'm not sure how much I want to do this. I'd much prefer not to sell the Northside Hall and move Southside, at least in the first instance. Uh, it's going to create issues. Uh, there's some that I can think of, some that others have said, you know, it's it's going to add 15 to 30 minutes to the trip for Northerners. It's um, There's going to be maybe, I don't know, 10 people uh, needing a lift every weekend. Uh, how do we get new people to come all that long way south? From a northern perspective, I don't know. I, I think Walter Billy Griffin has got a lot to answer for because things seem to be different when you go south of the lake. And, and I think, um, you know, southerners have observed that uh, things are different north side of the lake. You know, and most of the south side speakers, I think all of them, wear ties. But once you get north of the lake, Sydney or, or wherever else, you know, the speakers don't wear ties so often. And what are we going to do about these differences? You know, we, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, but we, you know, we, we develop these different cultures, don't we? How do we do lunch for 120 plus people? Uh, we're selling a hall with a lot of memories. You know, our daughter actually, it's, it's the same age as our daughter. 
I'm not allowed to say her age anymore, I don't think. It's not a polite matter of conversation anymore, but it's over 40 years. But perhaps most importantly, it sort of crystallises the fact that as a church, uh, we've been shrinking rather than growing. And that's just not in our DNA, is it? You might have some other reasons for not uh, particularly liking this move. But despite these issues, you know, I was part of the meeting uh, a week or so back and where we agreed that we should do this. Came in and, and Pastor Michael was uh, made the observation that maybe we shouldn't do anything. It was all too hard. But uh, when we'd all uh, made our contributions and, you know, we came to this conclusion together and oh, I pray that it was done before God. So what do we say to all these issues? Uh, and more because they're real ones. They're, they're absolutely real ones. Um, you know, we could respond or I could respond with logic. So about the extra time travelling, well, it's not really that much, not when you compare it to, you know, what saints in other cities have got to travel to commute to the meetings. Uh, when I was growing up uh, in country Victoria, there was a family that would travel every two weeks, two and a half hours from Orbos to Moore. Uh, they did that every fortnight because that's how important church was to them. About people needing lifts, well, I guess in a way that's pretty much the same as now. Uh, new people, well, we do have a responsibility to, to make church exciting and fresh and relevant when you're talking to someone and if you are excited about what you're involved with and, and your church, then that excitement will rub off. And as Pastor Mike said, we'll have some options, north side things that we can invite our friends and visitors to. The thing about different culture, well, you know, really every group develops its own culture and that changes over time and, and we'll develop a brand new one together. I'm sure lunch, well, that might need some thinking outside the box. The thing about memories, well, they won't change just because the hall's sold, you know. I still remember my marriage uh, to my wife in, uh, in our old hacker hall that's since been sold and demolished. I know there's lots of saints that remember, you know, receiving the Holy Spirit in the old log cabin in Maria. Uh, that's since been sold and hopefully it's been condemned. So, so we're shrinking uh, and that's a problem and, and we are praying that combining our strengths will go some way to changing that. I'm reminded of Sydney that uh, combined maybe a dozen years ago and uh, they've been having some great revival and growth in recent times and with their, their, you know, their strong and committed leadership. And uh, while I think of Sydney, um, I was just talking to our son who's in Sydney, uh, at the Sydney Fellowship, and uh, he was reminding me that uh, they still don't have their own halls, so people are travelling to the meetings every 40, uh, for 45 minutes early just to set up. So we're way ahead in that respect. But answers from logic aren't enough and they don't address our motivation. And so I would like to encourage everyone to see this as a new start for us and a brand new start. You mightn't feel like it because, you know, for half of the assembly, um, you're still going to the same place and the other half might just feel like they're travelling further. But we can make it a new start and, um, and we're looking forward to revival as a result. But how do we address our motivation? How do we address our commitment to serve the Lord? That whatever our circumstances, we will do all that we can to help our brother and sister. 
and to commune with them. Their simple answers with gracious grace, with loving kindness and with love, which was you know the point of what I was going to be talking about yesterday. But I don't know. I, I don't think I need to really talk about love, do I? We all know all about it. We all know that godly love, agape love, is is not about just a pleasant feeling, but it's love where you make a conscious decision to serve. And that's the decision we make in a marriage, to serve the other person. That's agape love. We know from John 13, 35, that it's by our love that people will recognise who we are and that we are children of God. And we love Christ and what he's done in us because he first loved us. We've got a great example there. So while it's easy to, you know, wallow in sorrow and the negatives, maybe this is actually God giving us a little bit of a shake. You know, I can hear him saying, wake up to yourselves. You know, it's uh, you are the church. It's not where you meet. So let me just uh, maybe leave you with these thoughts to ponder. Southerners, for those south of that lake in the middle of Canberra, you know, there's going to be some sadness from the, the, the northerners as we, as we travel south side. We're going to need to be loved. We're going to need to have kindness. We're going to need to be welcomed. We're going to need you to let us bring in some of our differentnesses like maybe Rafa leading the choruses or maybe standing up a little bit more every now and again. I'll probably won't wear a tie if I bring talk Southside. I don't know. I hope you can love us and, and, uh, and cope with that. But the message to everyone is that, you know, together we're responsible for loving the whole Cambridge church. That's loving each other and praying for the leadership to be strong and to be led by God. For younger people, I've got a, maybe a special thought. Younger people, when I say that, I mean anyone less than 45. You might not have thought that as young, but I reckon that's about the number. Take the, uh, you know, the baton. We just had the Olympics. Take the baton that's been fashioned over the last 45 years. It's time for you to lead the charge because, you know, I feel like my own time to retire from senior ministry is coming. I'm 66. I don't have the same energy I once did. I know Pastor Bob's 80 and um, still has the energy of a 30-year-old, but he's unique. Uh, I'm, I'm not the same. So I thought about some scriptures to use. I could have talked about um, the letters to the churches in Revelation. I love those letters. They're all about the same age of us. Uh, most of them had issues that uh, were addressed by Christ to them. I could have talked about Elijah crying out to God that he was the only one left and God said, no, no, you're not. There's still 7,000 others I've got. Could have talked about Nehemiah and rebuilding Jerusalem with just a small remnant, but I thought maybe I'll just finish with one verse in Psalm 127, verse 1. Except the Lord build the house, they labour in vain that build it. This is not your church. We often say that, but... Bear with me for a moment. This is not your church. It's not your pastor's church. It's not the Canberra church. It's God's church. Treat it as such. Love it as such. Serve it as such. And when we do, we'll be demonstrating the love of God will be recognised and God will honour, God will bless and God will grow. Amen.
the, uh, the, the sign that Pastor David just mentioned, it's very interesting. Um, some of you know that I am or was an architect. And uh, after I came to the Lord six months or more after we came to Canberra, that sign I actually put up in front of my drawing board in my office because I, I wanted to apply it to my work of, of designing and building buildings as well, except the Lord build the house and so on. No labour in vain that build it. And so it's just lovely to hear that psalm again because for me in the way that I think about building things, and that includes more importantly building the body of Christ, which is the people in the church rather than the actual buildings, um, that's critically important. I don't know whether who's driving this, but I'm not showing on my my screen for some reason. Anyway, I'm to talk about forgiveness, and I was really, um, I suppose, um, challenged by this because I realised that I hadn't thought deeply about forgiveness really ever, not not properly. I knew it was fundamental in Christianity that through the cross the people are forgiven of their separation from God and that it was necessary between people. But that was about as far as it went. And But I started to really think about it and I want to put up a couple of thoughts for you. The first one is that um, before Jesus Christ was on the earth and went to the cross, there wasn't forgiveness it was actually irrelevant in the creation and was not available for humans before or in the Garden of Eden. You remember what happened to Adam and Eve. They weren't forgiven by God. They were actually put out of the garden. So that uh, clearly wasn't available then, and it continued that way during the time of the Old Testament. The... Uh, uh, the consequences and um, punishments for humans were made clear but were still ex ignored by Israel um, from the time of Moses and the law until Jesus. It wasn't there, you see. Um, whether the capacity for forgiveness was in human beings before then, uh, that's another interesting question. Then I thought about conscience. What is conscience? Conscience is an awareness of right and wrong. Did human beings have that before Jesus came onto the earth? Well, I think that they did. I think that capacity was in human beings. And I certainly think that the capacity uh, to forgive was also within human beings but not realised or brought into reality until after Jesus. I say that conscience was there. There's a scripture in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, which says in part that Gentiles have not the law but do by nature the things contained in the law. The law gives the way of living right um, and correctly in the face of God. So they do not have the law, but by nature, the things contained in the law, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. So the answer to it is that yes, human beings did have a conscience or the capacity to make decisions about right and wrong, 
regardless of whatever society or nationality it is, it was throughout the whole of the world. Love, of course, was there from the beginning. If we go back 14 billion years or so, whatever it was when God began the creation, I believe that he did that from love. Love for the things that he was going to create and particularly beings who ultimately were going to be able to be like him. I think that the love was motivation. I could be wrong about that, of course, but I believe that the creation and particularly, I repeat, the relationship and the human beings that were created came from the love of God. In Matthew 5, everybody knows about what are called the Beatitudes and there are many blessed statements about people and character and qualities in people's lives. There are many of the qualities of love. It's interesting that forgiveness is not specifically listed uh, in those blessed are they statements that are made in Matthew 5. But I would suggest to you that, that forgiveness is integral in love. What about reconciliation, which can come and um, probably forgiveness is a necessary component uh, in reconciliation. How do we reconcile without forgiveness? How can we worship God if unforgiveness and resentment and desire for re revenge or justice as we might see it is driving us as in our hearts. What we do, of course, when we do that, we put ourselves in the position of judge. And I think it's really depressing, really, in the news constantly, whatever media that happens to come on, the people are finding fault with other people. They should have done this or should not have done that, whether it's politics, whether it's racial issues, whether it's climate change, whether it's COVID and how that's, whatever it is, constantly people, the first response to issues seems to be to say that the people who are responsible should have done it differently to what they have. They should have done it the way I think they should have done it. We do that all the time. So putting ourselves in the position of judge is a dangerous position to be in and it certainly does not bring about reconciliation which comes together with forgiveness. Matthew 5 um, is very clear where Jesus said to love our enemies, to do good to them that hate us, that you may be the children of God, be therefore perfect or complete. Uh, like your father, like God. You know, there are some challenging things that happened. I, I'm sure you all remember a year, maybe it's less than a year ago, there was that terrible accident uh, situation in Sydney where there were four young children going to buy an ice cream, I think it was, and some young man who was drugs and alcohol, I think it was, and he lost control of his car and he killed them. And I think three of them were of one family and the other one was a cousin, perhaps. I may not have that right. It turns out that the parents and the family were Maronite Christians. I don't know much about the Maronite church, but they forgave this man. And I thought, could I do that? 
if some young man who got out of control because of drugs and alcohol or killed three of my children, could I forgive him? I think um, until you're put in that position, you don't know the answer to that question. I, I'll speak for myself. I don't. Very difficult. I would think, what about justice? What about right and wrong? So, brothers and sisters, forgiveness is fundamental in Christianity. Jesus says so. It's absolutely forgiveness. We know um, the Lord's Prayer, forgiveness from God to men and from men to men. We won't try and read that through, <clears throat> but we are. Uh, we pray that the Lord's Prayer talks about forgiving fathers, uh, God forgiving us and we forgiving others. It's repeated afterwards as a comment that if we don't forgive others, then our God won't forgive us. You put yourself back. If you don't forgive others, you put yourself under the judgment of the law and its consequences because the law is all about being obedient to the law and consequences, right, good or, or bad, depending what you have done. And so if you don't forgive, then you put yourself back under the, I'll repeat it, the judgment of the law and the consequences for yourself. In Matthew 18, that's really expounded for us very clearly, and I think most of you know that story. But the story is there where a man owed a great deal to his boss, and the boss said, no, you don't have to pay it back. The boss he represents God in that story, and and uh, what he owed him was his life. The, the man owed him his life. It's talking about salvation. And then another fellow worker owed this first man a relatively small amount of money, and uh, he insisted, uh, the man that it was owed to, insisted that he receive it, um, and he couldn't do it. <clears throat> so he had him put in jail. Uh, until he until he was able to pay it. Bit of a strange combination, but anyway, that's what it says. And, and it goes on to say at the end of this story, Matthew 18, verse 33, 34, 35, that he is the man who refused to for forego the debt or forgive the debt. He's the one uh, who is subject to the tormentors. He was the one who was putting himself back in jail, as it were, to the problems of human nature and the tortures that can, we can put upon ourselves because of our failure to be um, open and forgiving and fundamentally loving towards other people, even though they may be wrong. And that's the hard bit. But if uh, I asked you all, any of you, to put your hands up if you've ever been wrong, of course we've all been wrong and more than once. And we've all required forgiveness and more than once. We must never forget that. I repeat that if we don't forgive others, we are putting ourselves back in the jail of judgment and condemnation. Jesus showed there's so many examples with the woman in John 8 taken in adultery and so on. He said, you're forgiven. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more, he said. Other questions, a couple of questions. Why is it not listed as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5? It's just not there. Um, 
it, uh, in that same passage, it talks, it says that all the law is fulfilled in the statement, love your neighbour as yourself. Well, you can't love your neighbour, say you love your neighbour and not forgive him or her uh, of the faults that he or she has, uh, perhaps against you, uh, as far as you are concerned. Forgiveness is an integral part of love. Similar question, why is it not listed as a list of qualities of things that we add to our salvation or add to our faith in Second Peter chapter 1? It says we've in those verses we've obtained faith and which includes all things that pertain, all things that pertain to life and godliness. And uh, it also says there that we can be partakers of the divine nature, but um, forgiveness is not listed. Clearly, forgiveness is fundamental and integral or in the nature of God and therefore does not need to be listed. You may not like, not think of it that way, but I'd like you to think of it that way. Forgiveness is fundamental and integral in the nature of God, which we receive when we receive the Holy Spirit, and therefore does not need to be listed separately. It's a very interesting situation that's listed for us just before the Passover day, listed in Matthew 21, when Jesus found went to the, the courtyard in the temple, the court of the Gentiles, and there were all sorts of merchants in there selling lambs for sacrifice, making money, turn it into a marketplace to make money. And he was pretty cranky and uh, says he made a small whip and he chased them all out of there. <clears throat> so would he have forgiven them? Well, I said oh, he would have, but it didn't stop him taking appropriate action. No, I don't, I'm not going to think of another example where you as an individual person can apply that, but he took correct action. Uh, they had no idea of the seriousness of what they were doing, um, and Jesus knew, of course, that he was the sacrificial lamb, and um, so he was, he was upset. Um, and as I say, took action to deal with it. But Jesus being Jesus, he had to forgive them ultimately. And that's shown for us just very soon afterwards on the cross. He said to a man, Jesus said to a man, I think he was a leper back in Luke 6, I think it was. Uh, no, it wasn't a leper. He was a lame man that had been let down through the roof. And Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven you. But interestingly enough, in Luke 23, verse 34, that terrible, terrible time on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I thought, why did he say that? Why didn't he say, I forgive them, because they do not what they do? Well, because he was talking about not just those that at that time had conspired against him and got him put on the cross, that terrible crucifixion. But he was talking about all mankind when he said that, before and after the crucifixion. He was talking about forgiveness that was available for mankind through his sacrifice. And that's why he said, 
God, God, Father, forgive them because it was only God, the Father, the, the I am, who can and must forgive because of Jesus' sacrifice. As people believe that and apply it to their own lives. Because if Jesus, sorry, if God the Father, the eternal I am, cannot forgive because through Jesus' sacrifice making that possible, then no one has salvation and no one has eternal life. So in my life uh, and in your life, simple lives, relationships, some close, um, some not so close, but with a relatively small number of people, I must forgive, particularly first in the church, in the family of God and my own family and others that I'm in contact with, I must forgive. God is the judge, not me. Amen.